Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, November 26th, we are studying Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. In this final text from the book of Amos, the prophet preaches the gospel. No holds barred. The fallen booth of David will be restored. All of creation will be renewed. The Lord will bring salvation to his people completely by his grace. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Jeremiah Johnson. Pastor Johnson serves at Glory of Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota. Pastor Johnson, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thanks, Pastor Apple. Good to be here. So, Pastor Johnson, it's, it only seems fair to me that every other pastor in this series wanted to talk about this text, but had to talk about the law. So I think that, that to start us off, help us recall that law that Amos has been preaching the rest of this book that leads us up to this text of gospel here at the end. Right. There's so much of it. But, <laughs> but in short, the book begins as, um, as Amos begins to kind of take aim at all the different nations around, like geographically around Israel and like kind of picks off one at a time and one at a time it gets closer both geographically and kind of nationally as well until finally this is the big surprise then and I think it's chapter two where he doesn't just condemn the other nations but also Judah and Israel as well which is uh you know that's kind of the big rhetorical move and then he goes into great detail about all the things that Israel has done wrong the co the covenant in so many ways they're abusing their own people they're uh, they're you know selling the uh, the poor for a pair of or for a pair of sandals and so on and so forth uh breaking the the third commandment and, uh, and it goes on and on and on and so there's so much so much judgment and rightfully so it um because if you remember the people uh this was kind of the second golden age for the northern kingdom, what we usually call the people of Israel. Remember, we're, we sometimes use Israel broadly and narrowly. Here we're using it narrowly as just the northern kingdom. And, uh, you know, they thought that this meant that uh, they had been, you know, uh, favored by the Lord, but they misread the signs of favor. And uh, they were actually being judged by the Lord, even though they were financially and politically very successful at the time, or at least the one percenters were. So, I mean, everything looks like it's going well for Israel. Amos comes along then and says, no, it's not. Everything is, is in fact, quite rotten. He preaches law, judgment, condemnation, and, and to the point that he, I mean, he even says, you know, there's no turning back at this point. And, and then we come to the text that we've got today, and, and it comes seemingly out of nowhere. I mean, you know, we've, we've been looking for these handholds for the gospel throughout the book, and it just, they've been very, very hard to grab a hold of, even though we, we've done it. And now here at the end, it, it, here's the gospel fully. I mean, where, where does this come from, Pastor Johnson? How does, how does this fit right. into Amos? 
No, I think this, well, let, let's go ahead and address maybe what is at least in the elephant in some people's rooms. I mean, some of your listeners may have never heard this or thought of this, but in scholarly circles, people have noticed this and, and uh, that it does come out of nowhere. And the conclusion by a lot of skeptical scholars has been like, oh, well, this couldn't possibly be a part of Amos. You know, this must be something they tacked on later because it seems like there's so much judgment and there doesn't seem to be a real, there doesn't seem to be a real good transition, you might say. And so um, I think a lot of people have wrongly concluded that this couldn't possibly have been Amos. It's somebody else must have written it. But I don't think that's the case. First of all, a couple reasons. Um, I think when skeptical scholars often assert this, which is really what they're doing, is they're asserting it. They're not really proving it. Um, what they're doing is they're only proving their own presuppositions. So in other words, the argument goes something roughly like this. Well, you know, every book has to sign, kind of have this certain kind of coherence to it, that if Amos is only talking about judgment, he can't really move and talk about grace like this. And therefore, since he can't do that, therefore, this must not be Amos. So, of course, that's completely circular logic. Um, but I think even stronger than that is the fact that this is an ongoing theme throughout the Old Testament, these dramatic reversals. Um, that that we get in uh, you know all throughout the uh, the Old Testament, like just for example Jonah, right? Jonah's sent to go and preach. Forty days in Nineveh will be completely you know destroyed, overturned. Well, they repent, and all of a sudden now they're God relents, and uh, and now that you know there's mercy, uh, or you know the uh, the judgment you know uh, foretold by Jeremiah, and then all of a sudden you get these little you know, glimmers of hope, like the new covenant passage with Jeremiah. And, and you could, I mean, there's two ways you can always do this. You can do this with any of the passages. You can say, um, well, goodness, there's so much law. This, that must be all this prophet can talk about. Therefore, anything that sounds like gospel must not have been this prophet. Well, the problem is you've actually, you're forcing that kind of assumption upon the text. You're not really getting it out of the text. And I think rhetorically, you know, in other words, the way the way the literature works, this um, dramatic turn, this pivot, you might say, starting with these last couple of verses, I think makes it all the more dramatic then um, that that uh, that here we've had so much judgment now, like you said, it's full blast gospel. I mean, there's no whole bars. There's no there's no fine print or anything like that, that this really shows us that the uh, the, the Lord um, you know, he is, uh, he is indeed gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, right? He relents of his calamity. And so, uh, I mean, so I see this as, I mean, it's coming out of nowhere, but it's not coming out of nowhere, if that makes sense. And, uh, and it is a dramatic reversal. And the, the contrast really emphasizes that dramatic reversal. So did you have did you have any other thoughts on that or well, any questions? Well, I, I like that? I like the way you put it. it. It's it's not coming out of nowhere in the sense that we've seen this sort of move in the Old Testament before, where suddenly there is grace where only there had been condemnation. Uh, but I, I do think that it it comes out of nowhere in the sense that that's what the gospel does. It it doesn't come right. from us. <laughs> it doesn't. I mean, none of this that we're going to read here in just a moment is coming because the people 
fixed everything somehow, like like they started worshiping correctly and their lives were, were transformed from injustice to justice. Mm-hmm. This promise is a promise. It doesn't come based to use catechetical, catechetical language. It doesn't come from our merit or worthiness. It comes completely from God's grace. And so just the rhetoric move that happens here in Amos, that it does seemingly come out of nowhere, in fact, points to that truth about grace in general. It comes out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So I, I mean, completely, uh, I completely affirm that. Very good. Then let's go ahead. Then, with no further ado, let's let's take a look at this text where Amos gives us pure, sweet gospel. So again, this is Amos chapter nine, verses eleven through fifteen. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen, and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord, who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. That is how the book of Amos concludes. So, Pastor Johnson, the first, well, I mean, before you even get to the booth of David, I suppose, in that day, I will raise up. We've we've heard Amos talk about that day before, and right. everywhere else in the book of Amos, that day was the day of judgment. But now here, here he's, He's reversing that yet again, and the day is a day of restoration. So, so start just start taking us into the text, Pastor Johnson. Right, you're quite right to emphasize that in that day is classic kind of end times, last day sort of talk, or if the the fancy theological term is eschatological. Um, and you're also right in pointing out that this is once again one of those one of those thematic elements that we do see earlier in Amos. Even though the gospel's coming out of nowhere, it's not like this is some completely different kind of language. And, uh, and once again, you're right. It was in that day. It was a day of judgment, but now it's also a day of mercy. And Amos, of course, is not the only person to use this this classic phrase. You know, a- Amos does, or on the. Uh, Joel does as well, and there's a couple of other prophets. So in that day, in that day, and so it's looking, we're automatically future-oriented. In that day, now which day is it? Well, the Lord doesn't tell us, and and kind of matrixing that then with all of the other kind of references to the day of the Lord, the last day, the day of, you know, of course, we're going to naturally see this coming into the day of Jesus's second coming, or even potentially is first. Um, that's the great part about in that day. It's kind of a flexible enough phrase where it never, it's never limited to one particular um, fulfillment. Mm-hmm. And so, so that's a great place to start. So we're already thinking kind of in the future here. So I'll raise up the booth of David. Now this should automatically send up a red flag for us because we usually talk about the house of David, right? You know, so the house of David is the, uh, is the family and, you know, his, uh, his lineage and his kingdom for that matter. But booth is the word, it's literally the word for tent, the, uh, the tent of David, the booth of David. And I think it would naturally, that naturally reminds us of the feast of booths or the feast of tents, 
which was the Israelite festival where the, uh, the Israelites, they all, they all like basically lived in tents for a little while. Um, I remember growing up, by the way, thinking that that's how everybody did all the time. I remember always hearing about uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that like, oh, well, they lived in tents. Everybody lived in tents. Well, that wasn't true. There were a lot of people who were, in fact, most people were in cities and in kind of like, you know, brick and mortar houses or, you know, mud brick houses or whatever else they made. Uh, and so the idea of a booth or a tent is always has a sense of temporary uh, that, that, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not quite done, but, but the, bigger associations here are the fact that this festival of booths were was the time where they went to uh where they the israelites were reminded of two things first of all their time in the desert you know in those 40 years of the wilderness wandering where the lord took care of them while they were still in the desert but also um it's reminded to them that the lord himself tented right along with them. He went camping with the Israelites as they, you know, as they wandered around in the wilderness there, you know, because t- what tabernacle means is basically tent. And so, um, so to raise up the booth of David brings in all those other associations uh, with it. Um, mm-hmm. And that it is, is fall. So there's a, especially presence of God. That's, that's what we need to think of. So I'll raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches. So, so just to, if I can, just to summarize. Go, then, yeah, so, go ahead, jump in. So in terms of the, the term booth, the reason that that's significant here in Amos's context is because we're thinking of, of God dwelling with his people. I mean, everything that we talked about right. at the end of the Exodus study is very applicable then to this. So, so mm-hmm. God's going to restore um, the booth of David. We're, we're thinking, okay, how is God going to dwell with his people in, 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 a tent, right? Or, or be there with them. These are the associations we're getting from Booth. Right. Now, now, so, and, and so there's plenty else to talk about too. And I think that's where you're headed. So, I mean, why is this Booth fallen? And, and then too, we, we don't want to just gloss over this. Why the Booth of, of David too? So Pastor Johnson, right. continue. Right, right. We, we're going to spend a lot of time on verse 11 because, I mean, you right. almost get sort of the whole thing right in verse 11. We'll move through the other verses a little faster. But right, the uh, it's fallen automatically implies that uh, that obviously there's been you know some kind of decimation of the uh, the booth of David. That it has. Keep in mind that this is still even before the fall of the northern or the southern kingdom, for that matter. Um, maybe let's go back a step again. That there were um, one of the most important kingly promises that God made to his people is uh, found in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where, um, where the Lord sent Samuel to David and makes this huge promise to him that he will, uh, you know, he's going to be the king of Israel, but he's not just going to be the king of Israel, but that he is going to have one of his descendants will reign on his throne forever, and his house will never fall. In other words, the, the, the lineage and kingdom of David will never come to an end. Now, of course, it hasn't, by this point in time, in Amos's time, it hasn't come to an end, although it's been, perhaps you might say, it's, it's showing its cracks, uh, right? The kingdom has already been divided, and the, you know, the line of David is reigning in the southern kingdom. But this is implying that, well, that won't even, even continue, that, uh, that the booth of David will fall. But already, it's almost like the gospel is coming in to take over the law that's just implied in here. He's going to raise it up, though. Uh, interesting, by the way, raise up, of course, is the same verb for resurrection. Uh, maybe more on that later. 
And so it implies that David's, uh, David's kingship, you know, his throne has fallen, but God is coming to repair it. And here's the thing is that it, uh, in it is included all the other promises to the nation of Israel. And uh, along with that comes the promise of a messianic king who will come and who will actually be, uh, you know, who God will call his son. And uh, this is all in, in, in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7. And, uh, and, he will, uh, and he will reign eternally. And so you've got all of these uh, images that are kind of that, that kind of accompany this promise to David. And so when he says he's going to repair this booth of David, um, along like that kind of brings in all these other promises, then through the back door carries them right along with it. Yeah, I'll repair its breaches, raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old. And so it's going to be at least as glorious as it was during kind of the heyday of David. So, so that days got, of old, well, yeah, I mean, so that days of old phrase then at, at the end of that verse it is recalling the glory that that was there with King David's kingdom. I mean, the those would have been, you know, we talk about this time as maybe I think we've had some guests call it the silver age for the people of Israel. This is as good as it's been since David. But David right. would have really been, I mean, that's what they looked to David and, and Solomon to an extent as this was when we were at our strongest and and the Lord's promising here that, I mean, is it going to be even better than that? Is that the idea? Well, I think it's going to be even better than that because I think there's a double entendre here. That as in the days of old, is he only referring to the days of, you know, of King David, you know, with, uh, you know, with his, his armies and his mighty men and his conquest of the Philistines? Or could it be that we're also looking at another fulfillment of this, which, you know, I know that I'm not, I'm not being real uh, subtle with this, am I? Because <laughs> I in the Old Testament, we have, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Well, no, no, yeah, go, just keep going, keep going. <laughs> okay. In the Old Testament, we have, we have more promises of, a, you know, somebody from the line of David, like, you know, you've got the classic Isaiah 6 passage, uh, you know, you have Isaiah 11 with, uh, you know, uh, Emmanuel, God with us. Jeremiah 23 talks about a righteous branch coming from the line of David. And of course, uh, then you got Ezekiel 30, uh, 34. I will still set them, set over them one shepherd, my servant David. But as he goes on to describe it, you think, well, that can't just be David. David's dead, right? Well, maybe there's a new David. And of course, that's the whole point, is that this booth of David ultimately gets fulfilled in Christ. And here's how it all comes together, or at least one of the places it all comes together is John chapter 1. Because it uh, it says in John one um, that uh, it talks about Jesus being the uh, you know the Word and the Word was with God the Word was God and um, you know and that He came and He dwelled among us but you know what the word for dwell is there it's the word for tent or the word for booth and so you see it's Jesus is the one who comes and tabernacles among us. And so the booth of David is really ultimately the booth or the tent of Jesus. Jesus himself fulfills this promise that in that day I will raise up the booth of David. Because think about who Jesus is called during his earthly ministry. He's called the true son of David. You go back to, to the genealogy at the beginning of Matthew, and that's one of the things Matthew points out, that he is the son of Abraham, the son of David. And so here he is. And yes, um, 
I will raise up the booth of David and they can have their kind of, uh, you know, there will be a temporal fulfillment of this, at least in part, when the Israelites come back from Babylon. But the real fulfillment is when Jesus, as the true David, when he, he comes intense among us in his flesh and it's fallen when he, when he suffers and dies, but then it's raised up again. I will raise up the booth of David really is truly pointing ahead to the resurrection of Jesus because Jesus, the one who tents among his people is the one who falls, but also rises again. And, uh, and he will rebuild it as in days of old. And I might even dare to say that, um, days of old probably goes back even further than the time of King David, but all the way back to the very beginning, giving us the scope all the way to all the way back to Eden, Genesis one and two. Mm. I think you're right about that, especially especially as we as we get farther along in these verses and the language moves not just to the line of David, this fallen booth that is raised up, but the, you get these creational images. And so I think to see right. the days of old, not only as a return to you know the so-called glory days, but but really a return to an, and an even greater thing than Eden, as we'll see as the text continues. But before we before we move on then, and I, I love how you, you've connected this now, this in that day, to Jesus' resurrection. We've seen throughout the book of Amos that in that day, when we're thinking about the day of the Lord in terms of judgment, the connections, especially to Good Friday, thinking about the darkness of Good Friday, how that's an important image in Amos, and the the idea of an earthquake and how that's a, an image that we get from Good Friday. But here, the day of the Lord is is really connected to Christ's own resurrection. And we see how you, you can't separate those two things from, from what Jesus does, his death and resurrection go together. But, but what I want to bring out now is that so Jesus, as the one who is who comes along, the fallen booth of David is restored, rebuilt, repaired, but it's not just for him, right? This is not, as you said, it's not just a promise for David the man, but this is a promise really for, for the whole house of Israel, right? Right, right. Yeah, and I think one place that... Um, uh, well, you can do this two ways. You can go look back in the Old Testament, you see that the way it goes with the king is the way it goes with the people. And so in the promise, the promises made to the king are the promises to the people. Or you can actually look at it the way that there, there's kind of a peculiar way you can see this, but it's really, it's really fascinating and very illuminating in, because this passage of all, of all the places it gets quoted, gets quoted in Acts chapter 15. So if you remember, that's um, in the Jerusalem council when the question of the day is, well, can, can the Gentiles? First, and then you'd be circumcised and follow the law and all that. And um, James actually quotes this passage, interestingly, because, um, but he quotes it about the church. And so he says, um, uh, let me just read that little portion, Acts 15, 15 through 19. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it's written. After this, I will return. I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. So what James is saying here is he's taking this passage that is really about the um, – and I've kind of jumped ahead here because he quotes not only chapter, verse 11, but also verse 12. Um, he takes this passage that is, 
that seems to be about uh, David and the nation of Israel, and he applies it then to the church and how the Gentiles are being welcomed into the church as well. And so I mean, this works on a number of levels, but it does point to what you were um, addressing earlier, and that is uh, that it's not just about the individual, but it's about the entire people. And now, who is... Who is true spiritual Israel? It's the church. Who are the true people of David? That is the people of Jesus. It's the church. So, so Pastor Johnson, verse 12, then, we, we need to look at that. And we've only got about a minute here before the break. So just give us a, a real short snippet as to how do we, how do we, as we get into verse 12, then, how, and thinking about as James quotes this in Acts 15, how, how do we get Gentiles involved in this from Amos 9, verse 12? Just give us a real short snippet, and we'll, we'll pick it up more fully on the other side of the break. Right. This is kind of like pre-Pentecost. The Gentiles are bre- being brought in. And so uh, think of it like Isaiah 2, the, the, uh, the nations will stream to the Lord's mountain. It's very much of all that same character. The Gentiles are being brought in, even here predicted in the Old Testament. Hmm. So we're going we're gonna to pick that theme up on the other side of the break here on Sharper Iron. You're listening to Worldwide KFUO this Tuesday, November 26th. We're looking at Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. We're going to take that short break, but please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron on this Tuesday, November 26th. We're looking at Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 15 with Pastor Jeremiah Johnson of Glory of Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota. Pastor Johnson, prior to the break, we were talking briefly about verse 12, and we said this is where the Gentiles start to come in. And and in the book of Amos, it seems that that's related then to this notion of the remnant of Edom. What is Amos talking about here in verse 12? <laughs> right. Why, why does Edom get singled out? Because hmm. all the nations get picked on earlier in the in the book, right? But Edom, I think, has this value. Um if you remember, David's final military victory back in Second Samuel is over Edom, and it kind of stands as like the furthest, you know, he ever made it. You know, that was that was the extent of his empire. Um, and but right after that, he, um, there's this beautiful little summary statement that says, "So David reigned over all Israel, and David ministered justice and equity to all his people." So these two things, I think, get tied together in the end, this, this victory over Edom, but it also gets tied to this reign of equity and justice. And so I think that's what's being sort of imported here, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. In other words, they will have as much territory as David ever had. And so it's kind of a David's military conquest as sort of prophetic for the, uh, the Messiah's true conquest. And and all the nations that are called by my name. Now, this is an unusual statement. All the nations who are called by my name. Well, 
historically, only one is called by the Lord's name. Uh, if you recall from Exodus, it's the Israelites who are called by, by the Lord's name. You know, not the Canaanites, not the Perizzites or the Hivites or the Jebusites or any of those other nations. It's just them. But now you see what's happening is that um, more are being included. That Edom, which was in some ways a, an end point for David, becomes, you might almost say, the launching point for this, this new David, you know, Jesus Christ. And so the nations who are called by my name implies that these other nations, the Gentiles, are also going to be called by his name, which is great news because I don't know about you, but I'm not ethnically Jewish. So mm-hmm. I'm really happy about this, that I actually can be called by his name. Um, and this is the inclusion of the Gentiles. This is, this is Pentecost. This is, and, and more, and more. Right. So, and so that when it says the remnant of Edom, then it's not as if only, it's not going to only be Israelites and Edomites, but Edom there is standing for all the Gentiles that will be brought in. And so Edom does show up in chapters one and two in those oracles against the nations Mm -hmm. and, and here only Edom. But when we hear the remnant of Edom, we really should be hearing all those nations that were condemned all those who now bear the Lord's name among those nations, they too will be raised up. They're included in this restoration, this resurrection of the fallen line of David. It extends to all of these territories and even more. I like the way you said that, that Edom represents the farthest extent, the end point for David, but it's only the beginning for the the new David, Jesus Christ. I think that's a, a fantastic image. The other thing about, about Edom that I've, I've heard, at least I've, I know I've found helpful, is that in Hebrew, the word Edom has the same consonants as the word Adam. Adam, Adam there mm-hmm. not just being the man, but Adam, mankind. And, and so that's another reason that Edom would get chosen here as being singled out, but really standing for, for all people. So verse 12 is, is the inclusion of the Gentiles in this fallen booth of David. And right. that makes sense as to why James would quote this in, in Acts 15. And I also don't want to miss there at the end of that verse, Pastor Johnson, that that notice who's doing this, right? Declares the Lord who does this. This is not mankind's doing. This is God's. Right. And, and as you um, points the whole thing in the direction of mercy, that this isn't because the Israelites all got their act together that he's doing this. The Lord is doing this. And I might even say unilaterally that he uh, he's not doing this because everybody else uh, did such a great job of repenting. That's right. That's right. So, so then verse with verse 13, we're, we're still talking restoration and renewal, but the image shifts a little bit from the right. image of a king and a kingdom now to, I mean, maybe we'll say like this, the, the creation and its creator. What, how does that image shift and what's going on then in verses as the text moves to verse 13? Right. It, you notice that the real key you kind of pick it up just by reading through it. But if you look at that first phrase, that's the signal that we've got a kind of a shift in, in imagery. Behold, the days are coming. So we have this, this, this is another end time flag, you know, days are coming. So it kind of parallels verse 11 when you had, um, when you had in that day. And so this is kind of like take two. It's number one. It's an indication that it's the same you might say it's, it's in reference to the same event. We're not talking about a completely different time or a completely different thing, but it's, this is a different way of looking at it, different set of, uh, of images that we're going to see. 
So just uh, real quick, just to, to jump on that, that, I mean, this sure. is the way that Hebrew poetry often works is in parallels. Right. So it, they'll say one thing and then they'll say the same thing in a slightly different way. And that's really what we're seeing here at the end of Amos, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So we shouldn't really see verse 13 through 15 as being something different, but an amp. So, but you're right that there's definitely, there's a strong agricultural um, uh, kind of uh, flavored all this, but there's also buried in this a lot of covenantal and judgment language, but it's judgment language all turned on its head. And so, um, so just for example, in, um, in verse right there in verse 13, um, you have, um, you have this, this image. Let me just explain this a little bit first. When the plowman shall overtake the reaper, it almost sounds like he's going to like, he's like coming and beating up on him or something. He's going to overtake him. That's not what it means. It means that, uh, him who sows the seed, in other words, it's going to be, um, the harvest is going to be so continuously abundant. They can't plant fast enough for the harvesters to be, it's like a, like if, if you uh, live in the Midwest at all, and you see a lot of the, uh, uh, you know, a lot of the harvest is happening. It'd be like if you had a planter falling right behind a combine. That's the idea here. That's how fruitful this place will actually be. But if you also remember back to chapter four, um, this is kind of the reverse of all these plagues that, uh, that the Lord had predicted against Israel. If you remember, there was this weird phrase about the cleanness of teeth and the lack of bread, meaning that, you know, your teeth are going to be clean. We have wine and seeds in abundance. Um, and if you remember back in chapter four, there, I withheld your rain and your many gardens and your vineyards and your fig trees and your olive uh, trees will all be devoured by locusts. But you don't have any of that here. You have exactly the opposite. It's not that the agriculture, instead of being decimated, will be multiplied. And so it's, it's just one of those beautiful images. You just got to kind of let, let it kind of ruminate with you and just imagine this in, in your mind. This is the kind of fruitfulness that the Lord will bring about. Right. I mean, when you're talking about the image that comes to my mind, and I, I know you're going to get there later, but just the, the idea of the tree of life in, in Revelation right. 21 or 22, where, where it's bearing fruit all year round. It, it's a similar right. idea oh, here. Sure. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. so then, you, I mean, you've talked about then, what about this, this matter of the mountains dripping sweet wine and hills flowing with it? How does the, the wine imagery fit in here? Right. I, I think it's just a furthering of the, uh, of the same thing. The mountains will drip sweet wine. I mean, unlike a lot of wine connoisseurs nowadays who like dry wine, uh, the best wine back then was sweet wine. And, um, and so in other words, it's the mountains shall drip sweet wine, the hills will flow with it. In other words, Thing. No part of, uh, of the land, when, when it's restored by the Lord, no part of the Lord land will be unfruitful. And so mm -hmm. everywhere will uh, we'll drip this. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so yeah, there's, um, well, we, we want to get some more into Amos chapter 5 in the next verse. So did you have a, anything in particular you were looking for there? Or? Well, no, I just, I mean, I think this would be a connection. That, how, how do we see Jesus fulfilling these verses. Oh, I mean, should we be thinking John sure, chapter sure. two? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The wedding at Cana. Um, I should have been thinking about that. And you've also have Isaiah chapter two well, or 25. Let's go to Isaiah chapter oh, 25 yes. and then yeah. we'll jump to John yeah. two. Um, on, on the Lord's mountain, um, there's this 
this classic image of this feast that the Lord's going to have where he swallows up death forever. And so we've got automatically got that resurrection theme there paired with the resurrection. Uh, on that mountain, he's going to have this feast with the best and the finest of wines, you know, well-refined, the best of meats. And so this is the, uh, you know, this is the fine, um, you know, the heavenly banquet, uh, which then uh, John chapter two, of course, is the wedding at Cana, where Jesus himself turns water into wine, where he gives, you might say, the uh, the very first signs of um, the very first signs of the heavenly wedding banquet and this kind of superabundant restoration of the land and uh, and how the people are blessed with its fruitfulness. And so it all kind of comes together as one big picture. Jesus is starting to do right there in Cana what he prophesies in, in uh, on the mountain of the Lord in Isaiah 25 and here in Amos 9 as well, and lots of other places too. Right. So then moving into verse 14, the Lord promises to restore the fortunes, and, and this is a, a big thing, my people Israel. Everywhere else in the book of Amos, when he's called them my people, but the shock of it is that he's calling them my people as he's judging them. Here, Amos, again, you get that reversal. My people Israel are going to be restored. And we see a, a very clear reference to something that happened earlier in the book of Amos. You mentioned Amos chapter 5, Pastor Johnson. Mm-hmm. Right. Once again, going back to the uh, the punishments that were pronounced, uh, Amos 5 verse 11 says, Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grace, you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. So there's this, this, and this is not the only place in the Old Testament that kind of describes this, that, that one of the ways that judgment is described is by doing the work and not receiving any of the, any of the benefits, you know, making, building the house, but not living in it, planting the vineyards, but not drinking its wine. But now it's reversed. It's, it's the opposite. Now um, they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. Now they shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. And so, so once again, it's the reversal of that punishment from earlier on. Um, yeah. And, and I think though, it also has to remind you, I think, of really the curse in Genesis 3, um, that, you know, the is, uh, or uh, Adam and Eve, when they're, uh, when they're evicted from the garden, um, the land produces thorns and thistles for them. And, and in some ways, I think this is the, and this is just me kind of musing on this a little bit, but isn't that always the way it is here in this age? I mean, you think about... Um, Ecclesiastes. It talks about you know this great evil that um, that he has seen that uh, that men you know they do all this work and they yet they have to leave it to another. Um, here in this age, this is always our problem. You know we we often work so hard and in the end, uh, not to sound trite, but you can't take it with you. You know, you can build the most beautiful house. You can have the most wonderful career. You can have a huge bank account with all this money. But in the end, you know, you're still dead. <laughs> and and uh, in all that stuff that you've accumulated, what does it do? How, you know, you can't, you can't take it with. And, uh, and, and the, uh, the author of Ecclesiastes says, this is indeed a grievous evil. In other words, I, what the Lord intended. This is a... Uh, this is sort of a natural consequence of something which is unnatural, and that is death. 
Um, but and so I see hints in here. Maybe I'm overreading it a little bit, but I see hints in here that if they're going to rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them and going to does that mean that they don't die? The only way they can do that for eternity is if they don't die. Mm. And I think mm. that certainly, even if that may, if I even if I might be slightly overreading this in Amos, this is certainly the, the picture that we have in Revelation like 21 and 22. Um, you know, where we're brought into the heavenly Jerusalem, where there is no more, there's no, there's no crying, there's no more tears, there's no more death. And that this plague that Ecclesiastes puts its finger on so well that, that all of our efforts here in this age will eventually come to naught, that that part of the curse will be undone, that we will actually have someplace permanent, that, uh, that we will never have to worry about, um, how would I put it, planting vineyards and not drinking their wine, if mm. I can say it that way. I don't. I don't so, think that's uh, an overreach, Pastor Johnson. I, I think you're right on um, because we'll call I, I it mean, typological, right? <laughs> well, right. And and Amos. I mean, Amos has proved over and over again that he knows he knows his Bible. Amos uh, very clearly knows the Book of Exodus. I mean, throughout we've seen these parallels to the ten plagues that the people of Israel are, are going through, and and Amos is is bringing it up constantly. He's he's using the books of Moses to preach, and so I don't I don't think it's an overreach at all to see the reversal of the curse here that's there in Genesis chapter three, that, that the days of old that the Lord is talking about, isn't just going back to King David, but this is, this is a restoration of his presence with them in the garden of Eden. I mean, you know, go back to the word booth that we talked about earlier and and the goal of Mm -hmm. the Lord dwelling with his people to take it all the way back to the garden of Eden. And then of course, you know, for us as new Testament Christians, then, to go forward into the book of revelation. I, I think that's, I think that's exactly what we should be seeing that this is a reversal of what was started with the first sin of, of Adam and Eve in the garden. And and that's what our Lord Jesus Christ has come to bring and that we'll receive fully on the last day. Um, you know, as, as you were, as you were talking, as we we're reading these, these verses from, from Amos, my mind was, was going, as I was looking at this ahead of time, my mind was going to the, the hymn and we're getting close to Christmas. It's not Advent joy yet, people. World. Yeah, joy to the world, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm glad. Right, so, right. Yeah, the, the last, the third verse particularly, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. Thorns infest the ground, right? Yeah. I was actually, he, funny you mentioned that. I was thinking of it too. Well, and, and he even uses, you know, I, I know that this hymn, I think is primarily based on Psalm 98, but I think Isaac Watts mm-hmm. here is, you know, I mean, he's, he's at least riffing a little bit on, on Amos chapter nine. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the well, curse right. is found. Just like you know, I mean, wine. so, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I, th- I mean, I think it's, it's right there. So as you, you know, I know it's not, it's not Christmas yet. So and we're not quite an advent <laughs> yet either. So let's hold off right on, on the Christmas music. But when you get there, <laughs> you know, right. uh, rejoice. You know, and, and, and now you've got a little bit more background for that hymn, Joy to the World here from, from Amos chapter nine, um, it, taking us back to the Garden of Eden. And I would say, because I think the picture that Revelation gives us is not just a return to the garden of Eden, but a surpassing of the garden of Eden. And, mm-hmm. and I think that's what, I think that's what Amos is, is seeing here as well. And, and he does start then to get into it in verse 15, this, this matter of, of planting continues, but now it's not the people of Israel or the church planting things, but now it's the Lord doing the planting. How does, how does Amos conclude this in verse 15? Right. Like you pointed out earlier, this is a, uh, 
this is the Lord taking action. And, um, and when the Lord, uh, when the Lord plants, then, you know, then it sticks, you know, so the Lord, he planted, he planted, uh, Adam and Eve in the garden, uh, you know, but now through the son of David, the Lord plans to permanently plant them. And I think, I think one of the key overlooked phrases is this, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land. I think, uh, um, Reed Lessing in his commentary makes this really great observation that this hints at the promise, um, that whereas Adam and Eve had the possibility of sin, obviously, that those who are planted in the new heavenly Jerusalem will not. In other words, they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them. This is not a land that we can lose, um, but it's actually promised to us uh, forever. And I mean, that's, you know, even my my daughter has asked this before. It's like, oh, dad, what if we, what if after Jesus raised us from the dead, what if we spin again? I'm like, great news, Molly. Uh, that can't happen, <laughs> you know, because the Lord has actually promised that he will plant us there never to be uprooted. Um, and it's, I mean, that, that's a tremendously encouraging thing that, that it won't just be history repeated in of itself. Like, like you said, this is not just back to the garden, but back to the garden, like version 2.0, better, better than ever. Uh, and it's it's the Lord who will actually do this. This this goes into uh, if I've got time for this. It sure, reminds yeah, yeah. us that the most sure things are always the things that the Lord does. You notice the I think one of the best parts of all this uh, of verses eleven through fifteen is that no reference is made whatsoever to uh, you know to Israel's actions or our actions for that matter. This is all the Lord doing these things. I will plant them on their land. And so we can always go back and say, well, how do we know this is certain? Because the Lord says he's going to do it. And that in some ways, I think dovetails very nicely with our sacramental theology, actually. I mean, uh, when we ask, well, how do we know, uh, you know, how do we really know that baptism saves? It's because the Lord does it. How do we know that we're getting forgiven in the Lord's Supper? because Jesus says so. And that the, the point of whenever we kind of insert ourselves into the equation, it always raises uncertainty in it. But when it's the Lord himself doing it, um, we can bank on that. That and that's how the book of Amos actually ends. Then, right? I mean, you get this signature. Right. I think it's it's not exactly the same thing, but you think how how the apostle Paul will sometimes at the end of his letters, you know, I write these letters in my own hand as his signature. Here, you get exactly that from the Lord. It, the last words of the book of Amos are, "Says the Lord your God, this is certain because He is doing it. You can take it to the bank. He will." raise up the fallen booth of David, Jesus Christ will come and, and he will die and rise. Right. I mean, all these things that Amos is seeing, they, they come to pass. And we know then that that gives us certainty looking forward to that day that has not yet come to pass in that day that Jesus speaks of when he returns and raises from the dead, that day is just as certain because he has spoken it. Pastor Johnson, we've got just about four minutes left here on the morning. If, if you'd like to to go, I don't I don't know if we've really talked a whole lot. We've mentioned it. And 
so in this way, I'm really the whole book serves as a um, as a picture of this of this judgment day that that uh, that on the one hand there is indeed judgment that that uh, that you know um, that people get what's coming to them, but on the other hand there is also indeed um, mercy and grace. Now, what's not stated explicitly is for those who believe, but um, but those who uh, those who come to inherit the uh, inherit the earth, um, you know, and so with the inheritance, you naturally think of the um, the verbiage that uh, that the Lord used when people come into the promised land of Israel. And if there's one thing that that verses 11 through 15 keep hitting on over and over again is this the uh, the promises connected to the land. It's their inheritance. Um, you know, it's the place where they will, uh, where the Lord will give them their bounty, and it's the place, um, you know, where where God's kingdom is established for them through the uh, through His servant David. And so, the term inheritance, I feel like, is is really maybe perhaps one of the best threads that brings us all the way then through to Revelation, because uh, then the very last two chapters of Revelation are the pla- describes the place where the Lord has prepared for His his people to inherit. They are to inherit the heavenly Jerusalem, the place where there are no tears and there is no more death. There is nothing wicked or, uh, or unclean, but only uh, good, pure, right, beautiful, because Christ is there tenting in our midst. Yeah. Pastor Jeremiah Johnson is the pastor at Glory of Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota, helping us this morning with Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. Pastor Johnson, thank you for helping us see the gospel in Amos this morning. Thank thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithfield, Texas. Thanks for journeying through the book of Amos with us. I know it was tough hearing all of that law. But we need to recognize the truth of what Amos preaches, that judgment rightly is ours for our sin. And cling not to anything that we can say or do, but cling only to Jesus Christ, the one who has been destroyed as the temple in his crucifixion, yet that fallen booth was raised up on the third day in resurrection for you and for me, granting eternal life to all who trust in him. Thanks for studying that with us here in the book of Amos and for continuing on with us here on Sharper Iron as we start a new series tomorrow. We're going to look at some Thanksgiving texts over the next couple of days. So please join us again. Talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.